Section 2 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 10, April 1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sources of the Saskatchewan Continued by Walter D. Wilcox it was not until late in the season of eighteen ninety eight that i had the opportunity to visit the source of the middle fork of the saskatchewan for this trip i engaged as packer william pato a man who had approved very efficient on previous expeditions also a cook and an outfit of nine horses it almost seemed foolhardy when on october twelfth against driving snow showers and a cold wind we set out from Lagan and once more resumed our toilsome march through the many miles of burnt timber northward, as it were, into the very teeth of winter. Through constant snowstorms, for the headwaters of the Bow are a breeding place for bad weather, we passed the upper Bow Lake, the divide beyond, and got six miles down the Little Fork on the third day, as a result of forced marches. During the following night there was a curious creaking sound of the tent ropes, and a sagging of the canvas, and in the morning our prospects for a successful trip were very gloomy indeed, with ten inches of new snow on the ground. Not wishing, under these circumstances, to get further away from civilization, we remained in camp all day. By afternoon the snow ceased, and the next day we were again on the march. The snow was fifteen inches deep in the Little Fork Valley, but only half that depth near the Saskatchewan, which we reached on the sixth day. On October 18th, we crossed the Little Fork and turned westward into a region that promised to be full of interest. The weather, which had been cloudy and threatening for some days, now gave signs of improvement by the appearance of blue sky in the west, and soon after the high mountains of the Middle Fork were bathed in sunlight the dazzling light on the snow-covered landscape being very cheering after the days of gloom and storm. The trail penetrates a forest on the south bank, and, frequently coming out on the river, allows views of the wide, long-strewn gravel wash, the work of summer floods. About five miles up the river, a valley comes in from Glacier Lake, and our camp was placed on a point of land between the confluent streams. The Saskatchewan, in this cold season, is clear as a mountain spring, and shallow enough to be fordable on foot. In summer, however, it is a raging flood that makes the region of Glacier Lake very difficult to reach. From our camp, I sat out in the afternoon to see the lake, and found it in an hour, though not without a hard scramble through deep snow and fallen timber. The view was well worth the labor expended. The lake, which is three or four miles long, is beautifully set among high peaks, and at the farther end a snow mountain sends down a glacier nearly to its level. The setting sun, sinking into a notch of the distant mountains, poured shafts of light through gray, misty clouds, and tinged their edges with a pale golden illumination. The lake was nearly calm, and reflected the beautiful picture of mountain and sky from her tremulously moving surface. The water, by retreating from its summer level, had exposed a wide margin of mud-covered boulders and slippery logs, the trunks of trees carried into the lake by snow-slides, 
but in the distance the forested banks seemed to press close upon the water. There was something wonderfully impressive in the awful solitude of such a scene under the spell of evening calm. From what had been seen of the country, I decided that it was important to reach, if possible, the summit of a high mountain that lay to the east of the lake, which, from its position, would command a comprehensive view of the whole region and also surely reveal Mount Forbes, which was somewhere west of the lake, according to Palliser's map. Accordingly, I was afoot the next morning at nine o'clock, with a camera on my shoulders, ready for the ascent. The mountain appeared to be about 7,800 feet in altitude, or in round numbers, 3,000 feet above our camp. The weather was bright and cold, nor was there a cloud in the sky, and it proved by far the best day of the trip. It appeared that the walking would be better on the other side of the glacier lake stream, and after some ineffectual attempts to bridge the river by felling trees, Peto carried me across on his back in a shallow place, and so the climb was commenced with dry boots. In less than five minutes a fine trail appeared, which saved a great deal of labor and considerable time in getting to the lake. The trail at length diverged to the east toward the mountain, and went in the right direction until the altitude was six hundred feet above the lake, affecting a great saving of energy in forcing our way through the underbrush. The sunlight was painfully brilliant on the snow, which was fully a foot in depth at seven thousand feet. At this altitude, in a last clump of spruce trees, I hung my camera on a branch and took a short rest, as the climb so far had been very exhausting. After a pause of ten minutes, the sharp air urged a recommencement of the ascent. The brilliant glare of an hour previous had given place to a somewhat cloudy sky, as a belt of heavy cirrus was drifting along over the mountains in a great line running north and south. The sun shone through it feebly, and was surrounded by a halo. I soon began to have doubts of my ability to succeed in the ascent, as my strength began to fail under so much exertion in the deep snow. The bushes, rocks, and other inequalities of the ground were buried, so that I frequently stumbled and fell. Moreover, it now became apparent that the size of the mountain had been much underestimated, for the heights on the right rose tremendously even after an altitude of 7,500 feet had been reached. The inclination was very steep, and the glare of the now-returned sun on the vast expanse of snow, and the absence of anything to fasten the eyes upon for relief, produced a curious sensation of dizziness, due perhaps in part to exhaustion. I felt, however, the importance of reaching the summit, as it meant practically the success of the entire trip. Moreover, the extraordinarily fine weather on this critical day of the trip seemed too providential to be lost from any lack of exertion or ambition. Summoning then all my resolution, I made reasonable progress for a time, but soon, in spite of every eager desire for success and ambition to reach the summit, the contest between willpower and tired muscles became doubtful, as the snow grew deeper with higher altitude, the slope steeper, and the far-off summit seemed no nearer. Every few yards of progress was invariably terminated by a fall in the snow, 
and it seemed better to rest for a moment in whatever position chance had it than to get up at once. A little later a view appeared that in itself well repaid the labor of the climb. On the right was an expanse of spotless snow, exceedingly steep, vast in extent, and dazzling in brilliancy. Its rounded contours were sharply outlined against the sky, but there was no interruption of stone or cliff on the monotonous covering of snow, nor any scale by which to judge of size or distance. The chief object of interest in the view was a snowy triangular peak covered with ice, which now began to appear in the west. The colors of rocks and cliffs and the distant peaks and precipices seemed absolutely black in contrast with the remarkable whiteness of the snow surface on all sides. Overhead the sky was intensely blue, but marked by distant wisps of white cirrus cloud, spun out like tufts of cotton into shreds and curving lines. At an altitude of 8,800 feet, or more than 4,000 feet above our camp, I at length reached the summit of the mountain crest. It was necessary to walk along the crest a quarter of a mile to reach a somewhat higher point, which was the true summit. The snow along this mountain ridge was in many places three or four feet deep, and, mindful of the terrible alpine accidents caused by cornices, I kept well away from the edge, below which it seemed to drop sheer several thousand feet. The snow was sparkling in the sun, and of the myriads of bright points about one half were merely white light, like diamonds. The other half were either green, blue, or amber-colored, like emeralds, sapphires, and topazes. From intense frost my gloves were frozen so stiff that notes and sketches had to be done with bare hands. The most conspicuous and interesting part of the whole vast panorama was the lofty summit of Mount Forbes, beyond the valley of Glacier Lake. This mountain, and another about ten miles to the west, were the two highest peaks in sight, and each is probably between 13,000 and 14,000 feet in altitude. Glaciers of very large size came from these mountains and terminate a few miles above the lake. The whole valley of the Saskatchewan, to its upper end, and in the opposite direction for many miles below the mouths of the north and little forks, was clearly visible. There was a very high rocky peak in a group of mountains east of the Little Fork that occupies the position of Hector's Mount Murchison, which he calculated to be 13,600 feet high. This mountain is hidden away in a group that must be 75 miles in circumference, and so it is rarely seen. There was a fine view to the north, where a wild and desolate valley, thousands of feet below, was dominated by a castle-like mountain over 11,000 feet high, probably Mount Lyle, cut in ruins like ancient towers and battlements. Of four plates exposed on this mountain, only one was successful, so I had a narrow escape from failing altogether in getting a view of Mount Forbes, which, because of its great height, is veiled from view by clouds and is frequently invisible for weeks at a time. On Thursday, October 20th, the day broke gray and unsettled, with the highest mountains touched by clouds. We continued our march up the Saskatchewan Valley, and urged the horses rapidly over a level gravel plain at such speed as to make in all ten miles. 
On the west side of the valley there is a stupendous wall of rock between 11,000 and 12,000 feet high, which terminates in the giant peak of Mount Forbes, a little to the north. About four miles from our camping place, there is a group of curious rounded hills rising like forested islands from the sea of gravel. There was a strong raw wind against us, and because of our water-soaked boots, half frozen by contact with snow, it was altogether too cold to keep in the saddle long, and everyone walked most of the time. We made camp in a miserable place of stunted timber, half killed by gravel which had been washed over the place by some change of the river's course not many years before. The river here divides into three streams. The smallest, near our camp, comes from the Howes Pass, less than three miles distant. The other two come from a valley to the southeast, all, curiously enough, flowing on different sides of a flat valley. In the afternoon I walked some three miles up the valley to where the lesser stream comes in from the west, and as it heads at the base of Mount Forbes, I followed it a mile or so farther, until presently the current became rapid, the valley narrow, and the water closely hemmed in by rocky banks so that the walking was very difficult. The snow was a foot deep in this little valley, where the sun and wind could not exert their influence as in the open. The stream on the other side of the valley is larger and comes from a glacier several miles distant. This whole region was thoroughly examined last summer by Messrs. Baker, Colley, and Stutfield, who not only explored the large glacier, which is supposed to be ten or fifteen miles long, but went up the other stream several miles to the base of Mount Forbes in the hopes of ascending it. The floodwaters that seeps down here in summer from the long glacier has cut channels three or four feet deep, lined with immense boulders, across the whole bottom of the valley. This is the chief stream or source of the Saskatchewan. During the night the wind came up in fitful gusts. The stars were no longer bright points, but foggy spots seen through a thin mist. Bands of clouds swept along the mountainsides almost as low as our camp, and at length the whole sky was overcast. The barometer was much lower at midnight. At 1 a.m. snow began to fall, which was a cause for no little apprehension, as we were far from the railroad. On Friday, October 21st, the sky was still threatening, though very little snow had fallen. We were on the march soon after 10 o'clock and reached the summit of the Haas Pass in an hour. This pass was made known to the traders of the Northwest Fur Company about 1810 by a man by the name of Howes or Haas, and was at one time much used by the Kootenay Indians, who came over the mountains and bartered with the fur traders at a place about three days' journey down the Saskatchewan, now known from this circumstance as the Kootenay Plain. This route is now impassable as fire has run through the forests in the lower part of the Baleberry Valley, and the timber has fallen for many miles. The pass itself is about 18 miles from the Little Fork, and 3,500 feet in altitude. At this point we were seven days' journey from the railroad by either of two routes, the one by which we had come, or another which, by going down the Blayberry, one day's march, and then over a pass to the southeast, would bring us to the Kicking Horse River, and so to Field in British Columbia. 
The latter route seemed preferable as it would be through a new region. The descent into the Blaeberry is one of the most trying exploits that the mountains offer. We commenced to descend rapidly the channel of a brawling mountain torrent, crossing from side to side constantly so that our horses were compelled to climb up and down steep banks, to scramble over immense logs, or sometimes to force a way down the boulder-strewn bed of the stream. As there was no trail, Peto had to lead the way by whatever route appeared best, and in several places our horses had to slide on their haunches down steep banks forty or fifty feet high, jump into the torrent, cross it, and then ascend a similar bank on the other side at the greatest risk of accident and to the no little trial of our own nerves. A trail appeared after three hours of such labor, and we camped about ten miles down the valley. It rained hard all night, turning to snow in the morning. On Saturday, October 22nd, we followed a branch stream which comes in from the southeast for a mile or so, and then ascended 2,600 feet without a trail through a heavy forest. The snow, which was hardly apparent in Blaeberry Valley, became 18 inches deep near the tree line. Snow also fell at frequent intervals throughout the day and shut out the landscape, so that our bearings were mostly by compass. Almost at nightfall, and in desperation, we camped in the depths of a heavy forest on the mountainside. The snow was very deep, and the temperature low, so that it was all the harder for our horses which had to be turned loose in the timber with no chance to feed. The heavily laden spruce trees sent down avalanches of snow at every stroke of the axe, so that it was very difficult to keep our campfire going, which was the more important as we had no water except by melting snow. On Sunday, October 23rd, the weather was still cold and threatening. It was very hard work packing up as all the ropes, canvas covers, tents and blankets were frozen stiff and covered with granular ice. Our horses looked very thin after their recent hard marches and little or no feed. They were hungry enough to bite off twigs and woody branches from the bushes which had a few buds on them. We did not get off till nearly noon, and then continued a traverse of the forested mountainside with a constant gradual descent in the hope of reaching a valley bottom that leads to the pass. We had no sooner started than a heavy snowstorm set in, shutting out everything from view. There was no trail, as the pass had never been used before this summer. In about two hours we reached a valley bottom that we supposed to be the right one, though Peto, who had taken the only other party through that ever crossed this pass, did not recognize it for some time. The deep snow and the constant ascent were very trying to our famished horses. One or two of us went ahead all the time and broke trail for them. But in spite of this, some of our pack animals lay down in the snow, exhausted, and groaned pitifully. We at length reached the summit and camped half a mile beyond. The snow was twenty-four inches deep on the level, and in depressions of the ground it was between three and four feet. Here our horses got a little grass by pawing away the snow, a trick they had learned during the hard winters on the plains. We were now at the head of the north branch of the Kicking Horse River, and it was practically a constant descent to field where we arrived in three days 
after having been out seventeen days. On this excursion, every camp but the first was made on snow-covered ground, and there were only three days on which some snow did not fall. No small measure of our success was due to the splendid outfit of horses supplied by Mr. T. E. Wilson of Banff, who gave me the pick of his pack animals. Very much depends on the training and strength of the horses in a rough country, where countless obstacles have to be overcome, fallen trees passed over, swamps and rivers crossed, the close-set mazes of deep forests penetrated, and a pathway carefully selected over the treacherous holes of loose rock slides. To seize the exact hour or day, amid the changes of fickle weather, the veiling smoke of forest fires and blinding snowstorms, that a particular journey or mountain ascent may be accomplished, rests in no small measure on the experience of the pack-horse, and it is a cause for little wonder that the traveller soon learns to take a certain pride in the faithful beasts which often do service at the sacrifice of their lives. Speaking generally of the headwaters of the Saskatchewan, the valleys are well wooded, the mountains very high for this part of the Rockies, and large areas are covered by snowfield or glaciers. The general character of the scenery is remarkably grand and unfailing in variety of mountain forms, so long as the valleys are the point of view. When viewed, however, from high summits, it is somewhat monotonous, due to the fact that thousands of mountains are visible in the grand panorama, all quite uniform in height, among which the higher peaks that are 11,000 or 12,000 feet above sea level are apparently lost. All the larger streams come from glaciers, and consequently reach their highest stage during the hottest weather. Their waters are turbid with glacial mud, and they undergo a rise by day when the sun melts the ice, and a fall at night when freezing commences. The region of the Middle Fork, especially near Glacier Lake and the base of Mount Forbes, is one of the grandest and most imposing, not only in the Rockies but possibly in any mountain range of the world, even under gloomy skies and in the desolate garb of winter. In this region are some of the highest mountains between Montana and the Athabasca Pass. The forests, which clothe all the mountains up to a height of 7,000 feet above sea level, are chiefly of Engelmann spruce and balsam fir, with occasional areas of jack pine. The beautiful Lyle's larch, characteristic of the mountains farther south, was never seen in these valleys. The summer season, which usually begins in June and lasts till September, is too short for extensive geographical work, so that much remains to be done in the way of exact measurement of mountains and glaciers. However, the very fact that travel among these mountains is still, for the most part, purely exploratory, adds not a little to the pleasure of visiting a region of such exceptional grandeur. End of Section 2